Welcome back to Fundamentally Mormon. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. It's part of the Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Today we're going to be continuing on with Jesus Was Married, Chapter 6, pages 38 through 52, An Everlasting Covenant of Marriage. Listen to the reader program first, which is 27 minutes. And then I will read it with commentary. Thank you for listening. The Covenant of Marriage, Chapter 6 of Jesus Was Married, pages 38 to 52. When Paul the Apostle reflected upon the history and the future of Christ's Gospel, he was saddened by the realization that there would come a falling away from those true teachings. Then while writing to Timothy he said that even all they which are in Asia be turned away. And he also marveled that those in Galatia were so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, and that there be some that trouble you, and would pervert the gospel of Christ. However, with consolation he knew that the times of refreshing shall come, which would be the times of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. This would be called the dispensation of the fullness of times and that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. This restoration of the fullness of the gospel would include every doctrinal law, principle, and ordinance which God had ever revealed to man by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. One of these gospel laws, among the many which has been deleted or diluted, was the practice and principle of plural marriage. It had been taught and practiced by the ancient prophets, patriarchs and the apostles. This law was commonly known and lived from the times of the ancient patriarchs, and continued down throughout their Christian dispensation. Although the practice of plural marriage was commonly known and believed by many people in the Jewish society, it was never condemned by Jesus. The Savior had surely witnessed plural marriage, heard it taught, and of course had read of the many examples of this law in the scriptures, yet there is no evidence that he opposed or refuted that practice. He spoke of strict moral issues which pertained to every physical or mental sin involving sex, but the word polygamy was never refuted nor did he utter a word against those prophets and patriarchs who had obeyed this principle of marriage. Because Jesus took no issue against polygamy, it is therefore implied that Jesus must have sanctioned that law. This fact was generally understood and accepted by many scriptorians and reformers. Our chief reformers, Luther, Melanchthon, Busser, Zwinglius, etc., after a solemn consultation at Wittenberg, on the question whether for a man to have two wives at once, was contrary to the divine law, answered unanimously that it was not, and on this authority, Philip the Landrave of Hesse actually married a second wife, his first being alive, 
the language of this council was, the gospel hath neither recalled nor forbid what was permitted in the law of Moses with respect to marriage. Tharath Torah, Volume 1, 212, by Rev. Martin Madden, nearly a hundred years ago a Christian minister by the name of James Campbell, because of an illness, resorted to traveling the world and studying its various religions. One of the religious practices which seemed to interest him most was the principle of polygamy. Through diligent study and research, both in present practices and from practices within the scriptures, he decided to write a book on the subject. Among his conclusions he contended that Jesus and his apostles had sanctioned plural marriage. The marriage system of polygamy never formed a part of that ceremonial dispensation which was abrogated by the New Testament. Nor has it ever been proved that the New Testament was designed to effect any change in it. But the presumption is that this new dispensation has also left it, as it found it, abiding still in force. If any change were to be made in an institution of such long standing, confirmed by positive law, it could obviously be made only by equally positive and explicit ordinances or enactments of the gospel. But such enactments are wanting. Christ himself was altogether silent in respect to polygamy, not once alluding to it. Yet it was practiced at the time of his advent throughout Judah and Galilee, and in all the other countries of Asia and Africa, and, without doubt, by some of his own disciples. The book of the Acts is equally silent as the four Gospels are. No allusion to it is found in any of the sermons of instructions or discussions of the Apostles and early saints recorded in that book. It was not because Jesus or the Apostles durst not condemn it, had they considered it sinful, that they did not speak of it, for Jesus hesitated not to denounce the sins of hypocrisy, covetousness, and adultery, and even alter and amend, apparently, the ancient laws respecting divorce and retaliation. But he never rebuked them for their polygamy, nor instituted any change in that system. And this uniform silence, so far as it implies anything, implies approval. John the Baptist was thrown into prison where he was afterwards beheaded for approving King Herod on account of his adultery, and we cannot doubt, that, if he would have mentioned it. For Herod's father was, just before that time, living with nine wives, whose names are recorded by Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Jews. But John only reproved him for marrying Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, while his brother was living. He administered the same reproof to Herod that Nathan had formerly done to David, and for similar reasons. The apostles always denounced the sins of fornication and adultery, but never denounced polygamy, nor intimated in any way that it was a sin. In all the long and painful catalogues of sins enumerated in the first, second and third chapters of Romans, many of which relate to the unlawful indulgence of the amorous propensities, polygamy is not once named. It is the very place where it is morally certain that it would have been named if it was sinful, and, that it is not there named, we are fully warranted to believe that it is not sinful. Whenever God had commanded men to obey the principle of plural marriage, it became a binding law of the gospel to them. 
if they should refuse to obey that law or should contend against it, they were then breaking that covenant and would incur the judgment of God upon them. If God requires his people to live plural marriage, they have no other recourse but to accept it and obey his will. Such a law would become a part of their faith and religion, binding upon their conscience, and to disobey would be a sin. In July of 1841 the prophet Joseph Smith received a revelation pertaining to the principle and doctrine of men having many wives, and the Lord said to Joseph, Prepare thy heart to receive and obey the instructions which I am about to give unto you for all those who have this law revealed unto them must obey the same. For behold, I reveal unto you a new and an everlasting covenant. And if ye abide not that covenant, then are ye damned. For no one can reject this covenant and be permitted to enter into my glory. For all who will have a blessing at my hands shall abide the law which was appointed that blessing, and the conditions thereof, as were instituted from before the foundation of the world. In this revelation on plural marriage the Lord speaks of it as his law 31 times. This law, when obeyed in righteousness, would bring untold blessings in the future state. It was an everlasting covenant to be embraced as a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord said that Joseph Smith was given the appointment to restore all things and this doctrine and law was a part of that which necessarily had to be restored. This revelation respecting the law of plural marriage was as valid as any other revelation that Joseph Smith ever received. To doubt or dispute it, as a member of the LDS Church, would jeopardize their salvation. Many men and women have been willing to suffer the ravages of mobs, the fires of persecution, jail, poverty and even death to defend that law. To every faithful member of the church it became a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Savior in the meridian of time acknowledged this principle and sustained the prophets who lived it, thereby accepting the doctrine of plural marriage as a part of his gospel. And, these laws were preached and practiced, as the gospel, by the ancient prophets said the prophet Joseph Smith, but it is said that Abel himself obtained witness that he was righteous. Then certainly God spoke to him. Indeed, it is said that God talked with him. And if he did, would he not, seeing that Abel was righteous, deliver to him the whole plan of the gospel? And is not the gospel the news of the redemption? How could Abel offer a sacrifice and look forward with faith on the Son of God for a remission of his sins, and not understand the gospel? We all admit that the gospel has ordinances, and if so, had it not always ordinances, and were not its ordinances always the same? Perhaps our friends will say that the gospel and its ordinances were not known till the days of John, the son of Zacharias, in the days of Herod the king of Judah. But we will here look at this point, for our own part we cannot believe that the ancients in all ages were so ignorant of the system of heaven as many suppose, since all that were ever saved, were saved through the power of this great plan of redemption, as much before the coming of Christ as since. It will be noticed that, according to Paul, the gospel was preached to Abraham. 
We would like to be informed in what name the gospel was then preached, whether it was in the name of Christ or some other name. If in any other name, was it the gospel? And if it was the gospel, and that preached in the name of Christ, had it any ordinances? If not, was it the gospel? And if it had ordinances, what were they? Our friends may say, perhaps, that there were never any ordinances except those of offering sacrifices before the coming of Christ, and that it could not be possible before the gospel to have been administered while the law of sacrifice of blood was in force. But we will recollect that Abraham offered sacrifice, and notwithstanding this, had the gospel preached to him. So, then, because the ancients offered sacrifice, it did not hinder their hearing the gospel, but served, as we said before, to open their eyes, and enable them to look forward to the time of the coming of the Savior and rejoice in his redemption. We find also, that when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they had the gospel preached to them, according to Paul in his letter to the Hebrews, which says, For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. It is said again, in Galans 3.19, that the Lord of Moses, all Levitical law, was added, because of transgression. What, we ask, was this law added to, if it was not added to the gospel? It must be plain that it was added to the gospel, since we learned that they had the gospel preached to them. If then the gospel was preached to Abraham, and yet Abraham lived plural marriage, it indicates that Abraham was complying with the requirements of the ordinances of the gospel. We must therefore conclude that Abraham was obeying this principle as a law which was obligatory upon him. He was then justified in doing so. This was revealed to the prophet Joseph. Abraham received all things, whatsoever he received, by revelation and commandment, by my word, saith the Lord, and hath entered into his exaltation, and sitteth upon his throne. Go ye, therefore, and do the works of Abraham. Enter into my law, and ye shall be saved. But if ye enter not into my law, ye cannot receive the promise of my father, which he made unto Abraham. Person Pratt justified Abraham's living plural marriage, and came to the conclusion that it was a part of the gospel of Christ. If plurality is offensive in the sight of God, why was Abraham, who practiced it, called the friend of God, and the father of the faithful? Why did the Lord promise that in him, as well as in his seed, all the families of the earth should be blessed? Why require all the families of the earth, under the Christian dispensation, to be adopted into the family of a polygamist in order to be saved? Why choose a polygamist to be the father of all saved families? Why require all Christian families in order to be saved, to walk in the steps and do the works of Abraham? Why did God proclaim himself to be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and say that it shall be my name and my memorial to all generations? See Exodus 3.15 If polygamy is not to be sanctioned among generations of Christendom, 
Why did he represent himself to be the god of polygamists, and say that all generations should adopt the memorial of him? Why choose these polygamists to be examples for Christians, and say, that many should come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down with them in the kingdom of God? Will Abraham's wives and concubines, and Jacob's four wives be in the kingdom of God with their husbands? If so, will it not greatly corrupt the morals of Christians to sit down in the same kingdom with them? Will not Christians be greatly ashamed to be found sitting in the company of polygamists? Will not Christians entirely ruin their characters by being adopted into the family of so noted a polygamist as Abraham, and be obliged to acknowledge him as father, and be called his children? The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. What kind of gospel was preached unto Abraham? Was it not the same gospel that was preached after Christ, by which the heathen were to be justified, and by which all the families of the earth might be blessed by becoming the children of Abraham through adoption? Did it not require the same gospel to save the polygamist father in the kingdom of God, as that which saves his adopted children that sit down with him in the same kingdom? Does the gospel, since Christ exalted Christians to a more glorious kingdom than the one where Abraham dwells? If not, is it any better than the gospel preached to Abraham? Did not Abraham see the day of Christ and rejoice in it? and looked forward to his atoning sacrifice, the same as Christians afterwards looked back to the same atonement? If the gospel which was preached to Abraham required the same faith, the same repentance, the same justification, the same sanctification through the Holy Ghost, if it procured for him the same blessings, the same gifts of prophecy and revelations, the same gifts of seeing visions of conversing with angels, the same miraculous powers and heavenly promises, if it made him worthy of the title of the friend of God, and exalted him to be the father of the faithful, even the father of all saved nations, if, moreover, it saved him in the kingdom of God, in the same kingdom where his Christian children are to sit down with him, then was it not the gospel of Christianity, the very same gospel that was preached after Christ? And if the same gospel, then who dared nigh, that polygamy was not practiced by the very best of men, under a Christian and gospel dispensation? Who dare say that Abraham's righteousness was not as great as the righteousness of his children? Urson Pratt, the seer, 187-188, plural marriage was practiced by a few of the Jews during the Christian dispensation, however, it has nearly always been a doctrine that has aroused the prejudice and wrath of others. We may determine that plural marriage was one of the reasons that caused the persecution and oppression of Jesus. For if plural marriage was a part of the gospel, then Jesus would have taught it and practiced it himself. The prophet Joseph Smith indicated this. It always has been when a man was sent of God with the priesthood, and he began to preach the fullness of the gospel, that he was thrust out by his friends, who were all ready to butcher him if he teach things which they imagined to be wrong. And Jesus was crucified upon this principle. 
Many men will say, I will never forsake you, but will stand by you at all times. But the moment you teach them some of the mysteries of the kingdom of God that are attained in the heavens, and are to be revealed to the children of men when they are prepared for them they will be the first to stone you and put you to death. It was this same principle that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, and will cause the people to kill the prophets in this generation. I prophesy, in the name of the Lord God of Israel, anguish and wrath and tribulation and the withdrawing of the Spirit of God from the earth away this generation, until they are visited without a desolation. This generation is as corrupt as the generation of the Jews that crucified Christ, and if he were here today, and should preach the same doctrine he did then, they would put him to death. The prophet Joseph only confirmed what the ancient philosophers and historians had written as true facts of history. The apostle Jedediah Grant commented, The grand reason for the burst of public sentiment in anathemas upon Christ and his disciples, causing his crucifixion, was evidently based upon polygamy according to the testimony of the philosophers who rose in that age. A belief in the doctrine of a plurality of wives caused the persecution of Jesus and his followers. We might almost think they were Mormons. What does old Celsus say, who was a physician in the first century, whose medical works are esteemed very highly at the present time? His works on theology were burned with fire by the Catholics, they were so shocked at what they called their impiety. Celsus was a heathen philosopher. And what does he say upon the subject of Christ and his apostles, and their belief? He says, the grand reason why the Gentiles and philosophers of his school persecuted Jesus Christ, was because he had so many wives. There were Elizabeth, and Mary, and a host of others that followed him. After Jesus went from this stage of action, the apostles followed the example of their master. For instance, John the beloved disciple, writes in his second epistle, unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. Again, he says, having many things to write unto you or communicate, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you, and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. Again, the children of thy elect sister greet thee. This ancient philosopher says they were both John's wives. Paul says, Mine answer to them that to examine me is this, Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas? He, according to Celsus, had a numerous train of wives. The grand reason why the Gentiles and philosophers of his school persecuted Jesus Christ was, because he had so many wives. There were Elizabeth and Mary, and a host of others that followed him. Aurelius Cornelius tells us, it is only logical that Jesus and his apostles would honor all the laws of marriage in order to set the proper example for their followers. The Church of Christ required its officers, such as elders, bishops and even deacons, to marry. C.I. 10. 3, 1-4, 12. Peter was married, see Matt. 8, 14. Paul, 
who was a member of the Sanhedrin, had to be married to vote on the decisions of that body. See Acts 758-60, Acts 8, 1. All of the apostles honored Abraham in his marriages. Modern Christian ministers are embarrassed at the thought of Jesus being married, as though it was some sort of moral sin. However, if marriage has any element of sinfulness, where is it mentioned in the scriptures? Jesus never forbid, nor condemned, nor failed to sanction any of the principles and laws pertaining to this everlasting covenant of marriage, especially in the lives of Abraham, Jacob, and a host of other prophets who had lived plural marriage. Neither did he criticize any of the laws pertaining to marriage or plural marriages established by Moses. Okay, let's read this. Uh, chapter 6 of Jesus is Married, an Everlasting Covenant of Marriage, pages 38 through 52. When Paul the Apostle reflected upon the history and the future of Christ's gospel, he was saddened by the realization that there would come a falling away 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3 from those true teachings then while writing to Timothy he said that even all they which are in Asia be turned away 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 and he also marveled that those in Galatia were so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel and that there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. However, with the con uh, consol consolation, he knew that the times of refreshing shall come, which would be the times of restoration of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Acts chapter 3 verse 21. This would be called the dispensation of the fullness of times and that the full, that the dispensation, dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10. This restoration of the fullness of the gospel would include every doctrinal law, principle, and ordinance which God had ever revealed to man by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So, in Genesis chapter 9, of the inspired translation it is said that when a people live all that I have commanded and build Zion below they shall look up and Zion shall come down out of heaven with the church of the firstborn in order for the ancient of days to come to Adam and on Diamond, there has to be a people who will live all that God has commanded. 
And because of the perversions of of Christianity and of Judaism and every other religion, God had to have a time of restitution with a prophet in these last days. Revelations, it talks about how John saw an angel fly from the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth, crying with a loud voice, saying, Repent ye, repent ye, the day of the Lord is at hand. That angel came to a man who was a prophet on the earth, whose name was Joseph Smith Jr., and he restored many things as much as the saints could handle at the time. There were things that Joseph Smith knew that he could not speak about because the saints were not ready to hear it. Um, God has revealed to me many things as to why plural marriage is a thing. Um, But even in the scriptures, in the Tanakh or the Old Testament, it gives very detailed guidelines on how to live plural celestial marriage when it must be lived and how to not live it or prohibitions on how to not live it. So, but when God showed me... um, When I asked him, and people that have listened to me for years have heard this over and over again, but I'm going to say it again. I was wondering for many, many years where God was before the Big Bang that I was taught in school. And for many, many years, I bugged Heavenly Father a lot (laughs) about this question because it really bothered me. And one day as I was asking God this question for the umpteenth time, he took me up in a vision and he showed me the intelligence and where we all come from. And he showed me that when an intelligence becomes self-aware, the masculine and the feminine energies separate and you have a male and a female spirit. He also showed me how the intelligence were eternal, but when the masculine and the feminine energy separate, they begin to age. And he showed me that when a man and a woman is sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, that the aging spirit of the process stops and they regain this eternal life that they had before they became self-aware. And then he showed me the war in heaven. And he showed me how there were many more elect who were females than there were males. And because there were many more elect that were females that qualify for exaltation than there were males, God instituted plural celestial marriage. I used to believe in all of the reasons that people give for why plural marriage is a thing until I found out from God himself why he allows plural marriage.
I wish people could see the things that God has showed me. I wish people wouldn't just throw things out because of their misinterpretation of Scripture. But time and time again, people grab Scripture and they don't know what to do with it and they interpret it by the light of their Gentile mind and the interpretation is incorrect. And I've said it again and again and again that Scripture is not for private interpretation. The interpretation of Scripture belongs solely to our Father in Heaven. And if we want to understand true principles and true gospel topics or true interpretation of Scripture, we must go to our Father in the name of Messiah and ask Him to inspire us. And then when we receive inspiration and we've studied out out to the best of our ability, God speaks to our mind and to our heart. We must get confirmation of the Spirit that the conclusion that we come to is from Him. And that is done by the fruit of the Spirit, by the burning in the bosom, and by the feelings of peace and joy and love in these type of things. And if it's wrong, the Spirit withdraws from us and we have a stupor of thought and we feel the exact opposite of the Spirit of God, which is confusion and anxiety and anger and stress and all these type of things. James chapter 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, ask God, and he will give it to you. That, when he does that, that's revelation. When you receive revelation, you become a prophet. And nobody comes to Christ without the spirit of prophecy that Jesus is the Messiah. I think that a lot of people have a misinterpretation or misunderstanding of what it means to be a prophet. We all have the ability to receive revelation from God in our own stewardship, in our own lives. We also have the ability to get revelation and confirmation of the Spirit concerning doctrine. In fact, we're required to do so. Because any other way is trusting in the flesh of your mind or the flesh of another man or woman. And that brings a curse. Because God wants you to go to him like a little child and get revelation for yourself. Continuing on. One of these gospel laws among the many which had been deleted or diluted was the practice and principle of plural marriage. It had been taught and practiced by the ancient prophets, patriarchs, and the apostles. This law was commonly known and lived from the times of the ancient patriarchs and continued down throughout the Christian dispensation. Page 39. Although the practice of plural marriage was commonly known and believed by many people in the Jewish society, it was never condemned by Jesus. 
the Savior had surely witnessed plural marriage, heard it taught, because he read the Torah, and it's in the Torah, and many, and of course, had read it many, had read of the many examples of this law in the scriptures, yet there is no evidence that he ever opposed or refuted that practice. He spoke of strict moral issues which pertain to every physical and mental sin involving sex, but the word polygamy was never refuted, nor did he utter a word against those prophets and patriarchs who had obeyed this principle of marriage. Because Jesus took no issue against polygamy, it is therefore implied that Jesus must have sanctioned that law. This fact is generally understood and accepted by many scriptorians and reformers. Our chief reformers, Luther, Melanchthon, Bucer, Zungilus, I have no idea how to say these guys' name, after a solemn consultation, at Wittenberg, Germany, on the question whether a man, whether for a man to have two wives at once was contrary to divine law, they answered unanimous, unanimously that it was not. So these were monks, people who were very, very um, read in the scriptures, Martin Luther and his buddies, basically. And this, um, and on this authority, Philip the Landrave of Hesse, which was where Germany is uh, now, actually married a second wife, and uh, his first wife being alive. The language of this council was the gospel hath neither recalled nor forbidden what was permitted in the law of Moses with respect to marriage. Yeah, and that is by Reverend Martin Madden in his book, Thylipithoria, I guess. Volume 1, page 212 or 212. Nearly a hundred years ago, a Christian minister by the name of James Campbell, because of an illness resorted to traveling the world and studying its various religions. One of the religious practices which seemed to interest him most was the principle of polygamy. Through diligent study and research, both in present practices and from practices within the scriptures, he decided to write a book on the subject. Among his other his conclusions, he contended that Jesus and his apostles had sanctioned plural marriage. Page 40. The marriage system of polygamy, or plural celestial marriage, never formed a part of that ceremonial dispensation which was abrogated by the New Testament, nor has it ever been proved that the New Testament was designed to affect any change in it but the presumption is that this new dispensation has also left it 
as it found it, abiding still in force. If any change were to be made in an institution of such long standing, confirmed by positive law, it could obviously be made only by the equally positive and explicit ordinances or entrance in our enactments of the gospel. But such enactments are wanting. Christ himself was altogether silent in respect to polygamy, not once alluding to it, yet it was practiced at the time of his advent through uh, Judah and Galilee and in all the other countries of Asia, Africa, and without doubt by some of his own disciples. Anyway, I'm going to have to come back to this later because I am trying to stay awake and it's not working. I actually, yesterday, um, or the day before yesterday, I got up about 4 p.m., got into work by 5, worked all night long, got home a little after 5.15, 5.30 yesterday morning, helped my family get ready for work and school, and then our home inspector came over so that he could inspect the house so that we could uh, get this loan for this house. And he did not leave until after 10.30, 11 maybe. I slept from about 11 to 5 p.m., which means I was actually late for work yesterday. Uh, hurried up, grabbed my things, got to the yard where I parked my semi-truck at 5.30 p.m., drove all night long without stopping hardly well I didn't stop anywhere extra I just you have to walk around the truck and inspect certain things before you get loaded so I would get out to do that but anyway I got home about 5.20 this morning or yeah it was about 5.20 and I am so exhausted luckily I am using a recorder uh, program on my iPhone to record the podcast now, and I'll upload this later when I finish the reading. But let me try to get to a place that I know that I'll be able to pick up from. So I'll read a little bit more. The book of the Acts is equally silent as the four Gospels are. No allusion to it is found in any of the sermons or instructions or discussions of the apostles and the early saints recorded in that book. But was not it was not because Jesus or the apostles durst not condemn it. They had considered it sinful or had they considered it sinful, they they did not speak of it, for Jesus hesitated not to denounce the sin of the sins of polygamy, covetousness, and adultery. Anyway, I'm gonna have to be done with it for today because I really can't. 
Um, not for today. I'm going to get up later when I finish sleeping. And I'll, uh, I'll finish it then. And pretty much it'll all be one, you know, podcast. So, anyway, thank you for listening to this point. I'll be right back as far as you're concerned. But I'm going to go to sleep. So, we'll be back just a little bit for you. Okay, so let's start again with this last paragraph. The book of Acts is equally silent as the four Gospels are. No allusion to it is found in any of the sermons or instructions or discussions of the apostles or the early saints recorded in that book. It was not because Jesus or the apostles durst not condemn it, they had considered it or they had considered it sinful or that they did not speak of it for Jesus has hesitated not to denounce the sins of hypocrisy covetousness and adultery and even alter and amend apparently the ancient laws respecting divorce and retali- uh, retaliation but he never rebuked them for their polygamy nor instituted any change in that system. And this uniform silence, so far as it implies anything, implies approval. John the Baptist was thrown into prison, where he was afterwards beheaded for reproving King Herod on account of his adultery. We cannot doubt that if he, if it w- if he would have mentioned it for Herod... Herod's father was just before that time living with nine wives whose names are recorded by Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews. But John only reproved him for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife, while his brother was still living. Page 41. He administered the same reproof to Herod that Nathan had formerly done to David, and for similar reasons. The apostles always denounced the sins of fornication and adultery, but never denounced polygamy, nor intimate, intimated in any way that it was sinful. In all the long and painful catalogs of sin enumerated in the first, second, and third chapters of Romans, many of which relate to unlawful indulgence of the amorous propensities, polygamy is not once named. It is the very place where it is morally certain that it would have been named if it were sinful, and that it is not there named. We are fully warranted to believe that it is not sinful. End quote. The History and Philosophy of Marriage by Reverend James Campbell, pages 69 through 71. The only thing sinful about polygamy is where you multiply wives and uh, that is where you take too many wives and um, so if you take um, too many wives you're not able to fulfill the other instructions in Torah concerning polygamy and those are that you have to provide for their home the, the woman's and her children your children their home, their clothing, their food, and their sexual desires. <clears throat> now, the problem 
with David and Solomon, they actually broke Torah in multiplying wives <clears throat> because every woman has, well, maybe not everyone, but most women have sexual urges and that is a part of, of their life that they should have fulfilled. Um, and if a man has too many wives and he cannot properly attend to her emotional, physical, or sexual needs. So that's why God um, prohibited multiplying wives. And that was sinful. And even in the book of J Jacob, in the Book of Mormon, it talks about that, that David and Solomon were guilty of that. However, in section 132, it says that... Um, that David and Solomon did nothing wrong except for uh, David took Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. So that's one of the reasons I see uh, that section 132 was either added to um, or it's just a completely fabricated revelation because it actually contradicts Torah and it contradicts the Book of Mormon. But what people, most people get wrong is that they think that the book of Jacob completely pro prohibits polygamy, but it doesn't because there were plenty of polygamists in the book of Mormon and in the Bible. But people that want to get, want to have a problem with polygamy, they'll, they'll use that to beat polygamists about the head when they're just misinterpreting scripture. They're cherry picking what is said without taking into consideration the other instructions of Scripture. And Joseph Smith in the Times and Seasons, I think it was April 1844, stated that if any man contradicts the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or the Doctrine and Covenants, you have to set them down as imposters. Which is why I reject section 132 as a corrupted revelation, I believe Brigham Young added things to it that that weren't there. Also, it's interesting, in the Joseph Smith papers, I've heard that they don't have Section 132. Even though Brigham Young said that he got it from Joseph Smith, but it wasn't released to the Saints until the 1850s, which is curious to say the least. But the reason I have to reject section 132 is because it contradicts both the Book of Mormon and the Old Testament. So, um, in one place, God says not to do a certain thing, which was wrong. David and Solomon were guilty of that. The Book of Mormon clearly says that they were guilty of that, multiplying wives. But in section 132... Um, they, Jesus says something else, which he's not going to say one thing in two books of scriptures and then completely contradict himself in a revelation. So anyway, continuing on, but like I said, well, yeah, like I said before, God showed me why polygamy was instituted. It is only for the elect and it should only be lived by revelation the Gentiles can do whatever they want. I mean, if they want to live polygamy, that's their thing. But the elect of God should only live plural celestial marriage if they receive, all of them receive revelation that it is correct. 
none of this taking women behind or behind your wife's back. No, like I don't know. I just I have a problem with it. Also, you can be sealed to one wife, and if God never brings a, a plural celestial situation to you and your wife, that's fine. You know, that's what God wants. That's what God wants. If God brings that into your family and you reject it, then there's a problem. But if if you're just trying to go out and live it without getting revelation, there's a problem with that too. So whenever God had commanded men to obey the principle of plural marriage, it became a binding law of the gospel to them. If they should refuse to obey that law, they sh- they should contend against, or they should contend against it. They were then breaking the covenant and would incur the judgment of God upon them, because God doesn't want you to live it unless He tells you to. But according to what God showed me, it is extremely important that women who qualify for the exaltation and the higher blessings. They must be sealed to a righteous man. And if those, if there are not enough men, then God will instruct people to live plural celestial marriage. So I have um, an ex-girlfriend that I have known for probably 12 or 13 years. And... Um, we were really serious back in 2010 and uh, she broke things off because she was praying about me and about what you know she should do and advancing in the relationship and God told her that she needed to break up with me and that I was going to meet another person and I needed to do that so anyway she did I was very upset by it, but I accepted it, and I actually did meet somebody, and uh, I went through some experiences with that person that I needed to go through, and um, long story short, things didn't work out. Um, I I left Everett, Washington, um, because she lived in Washington, and just to get my head clear and try to figure things out I actually put all my stuff in storage and drove my car from Everett Washington to Tampa Florida and I lived in Tampa uh, St. Petersburg near Tampa right on Tampa Bay uh, for for a while and then I met my wife who is my wife now Um, when we came out and we met with my friend who I love dearly um, and who there's like this magnetic attraction between us. She said that if the Mormon church allowed polygamy, that she would want to be our sister wife, but she can't do it because she doesn't want to get excommunicated from the church. So she's still single. She's been single for a very long time. And, uh, and we're still friends. Well, it's sad because 
if a woman can be sealed to a man who is already sealed to another woman, it's more important that she does she gets sealed. So Joseph Smith, um, they say you know he lived polygamy, but he didn't have any children by anyone other than Emma, and we know that he could get her pregnant because he had many children by Emma. But they did DNA tests on all these these descendants of these um, polygamous relationships that were so-called like Joseph Smith polygamy. And to this date, I don't think they've found any DNA evidence that would show that Joseph Smith was actually the father of any polygamous children. But he was sealed to other women. But he was sealed to other men too. And most people don't understand these things or why these things happened. The men being sealed to men was something called the law of adoption. So when Joseph Smith received his calling and election, he was sealed up to Jesus Christ and to the Father and received his calling and election, right? Well, he became a mortal man on the earth that people were sealed to and so that the hearts of the children on the earth would be turned to the hearts of the fathers in heaven. So he became that one man on the earth and he was sealed to many men and through the the sealings of their of these men to their women and children they were all sealed to in this chain basically back to Father Adam and to Jesus Christ and to Jehovah and to the Elohim, because they're all sealed together. Um, and that is important that that happens, but um, he didn't live polygamy carnally. At least I don't believe he did. And I don't think it's necessary to, but if the woman, um, if the woman has sexual desires and she needs what a woman needs with the uh, emotional and the sexual stuff then um, I don't know it's just in the Torah that that has to be provided for them so but no Joseph Smith was sealed to women who were already married to men and they remained married to those husbands but they were sealed to Joseph Smith well it's important for a woman to be sealed to a man who is you know Worthy to receive that sealing. So, anyway, let me just continue on with the reading. If God requires his people to live plural marriage, they have no other recourse but to accept it and obey his will. Such a law would become part of their faith and religion, binding upon their conscience, and to disobey would be a sin. In July of 1841, the prophet Joseph Smith received a revelation pertaining to the principle and the doctrine of having many wives. And the Lord said to Joseph, Prepare thy heart to receive and obey the instructions which I am about to give unto you, for all those who have this law revealed unto them must obey the same. For behold, I reveal unto you a new and everlasting covenant, and if you and if ye abide not that covenant, then ye are damned, for no man can reject this covenant and be permitted to enter into my glory. Page 42. For all who have a blessing at my hand shall abide the law which was appointed that 
which was appointed that blessing and the conditions thereof as were instituted from before the foundations of the earth. Doctrine and Covenants section 132 verses 3 through 5. Now, I believe that there is some truth in this, but I also believe that it was... Um, I Jules, or Brigham Young did some things. Like, there's some evidence that he, like, would take revelations and just stuff them into, uh, into sections. So there would be, like, multiple revelations, but then he also edited things. So, I don't know, but this is interesting because in July of 1841, supposedly he received this revelation, but it wasn't released to the church until until Brigham Young. And as I said before, when Jesus says that David and Solomon did nothing wrong except for whatever, well, Solomon did a lot of things wrong, but David, you know, it does say that he was wrong for doing what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah, and he was wrong. But just the fact that he had so many wives, it contradicts or it goes against the instructions in Torah uh, for multiplying wives and for providing for the for the marriage relationship. So that this section 132 clearly contradicts both the Old Testament and the Book of Mormon where it it says that David and and Solomon were wrong in what they did. Anyway, and this doctrine and law was part of that which is necessary, which had necessarily. I'm sorry, and this doctrine and law was a part of that which necessarily had to be restored, and that's true. that section 132 is corrupted. And I only know it's true because God showed it to me. So, this revelation respecting the law of plural marriage was as valid as any other revelation that Joseph Smith ever ever received. To doubt it or dispute it as members of the LDS Church would jeopardize, jeopardize their salvation. So that's Ogden's opinion, but I... I guess I have a different opinion than Ogden did. Now, um, I am perfectly willing to live plural celestial marriage, and so is my wife, if God brings that to us, but we're not looking for it. So a number of years ago, um, we were approached by uh, a person that was working for TLC, and they wanted to um, to possibly have my wife and I on their show. And that would require us to be going out actively looking for a sister wife. And we feel that that is not right, that people should not be doing that. Um, if God wants you to have a wife, he will bring her to you. And... I know that that's true because Kim and I um, haven't talked about this on the radio show or the podcast for a while, but we were strangers when God brought us together. We barely knew each other, but God told us to be with each other, and we we both trusted God. And from the time that we first met in person until we were married, 
was 20 days or something like that. It was June 30th, 2012 when I met her face to face. And it was July 20th, 2012 that we got married. So, and it was the best decision I've ever made. You know, we both trusted God. And we did what we were asked to do. And we knew it was from God. So we did it, right? So if God wanted to bring a woman into our relationship for us to live the principle, then we would live it. But we're not looking for it. So, many, many men and women have been willing to suffer the ravages of mobs, the fires of persecution, jail, poverty, and even death to define that to defend that law. To every faithful member of the church, it became part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Savior in the meridian of time acknowledged this principle and sustained the prophets who lived it, thereby accepting the doctrine of plural marriage as part of his gospel. And these laws were preached and practiced as the gospel by the ancient prophets, said the prophet Joseph Smith, quote, But it is said that Abel himself obtained witness that he was righteous, then certainly God spoke to him indeed. It is said that God talked with him, and if he did, would he not, seeing that Abel was righteous, deliver him the whole plan of, of the gospel? And is not the gospel the news of the redemption? How could Abel offer a sacrifice and look forward with faith on the Son of God for remission of his sins and not understand the gospel? page 43 we all admit that the gospel has ordinances and if so had it not always ordinances and were not its ordinances always the same perhaps our friends will say that the gospel and its ordinances were not known till the days of john the son of zacharias and the days of herod the king of judea but we will here look at this point for our own part, we cannot believe that the ancients in all ages were so ignorant of the system of heaven as many suppose. Since all that were ever saved were saved through the power of this great plan of redemption, as much before the coming of Christ as since. It will be noticed that according to Paul in Galatians chapter 3 verse 8, the gospel was preached to Abraham. We would like to be informed in what name the gospel was then preached, whether it was in the name of Christ or some other name. If in, in another name, was it the gospel? And if it was the gospel and that preached in the name of Christ, had it any ordinances? Now, let me just say real quick, this is still Joseph Smith talking, but Christ is the Greek for Messiah, which is Aramaic, which is Hamashiach in Hebrew. Hamashiach means anointed. That's all it means. There are many things in the temple that were anointed, furniture and utensils, whatnot. They were called Messiahs or Hamashiach. You could be an anointed one of God, like King Cyrus was 
called a Messiah. He was an anointed one of God. When you've gone through the temple ordinances and you receive your anointings, you are an anointed one of God. You are a Messiah. But there is a king Messiah, and his name was Yeshua, and you call him Jesus Christ. He was anointed by the Father himself after his 40-day fast. Same as I was anointed myself in 2003 under the hands of the Father himself. So when John the Baptist gave the Aaronic priesthood to Joseph Smith, and I think it was Oliver Caldry. He did it in the name of the Office of Messiah. So they didn't need to have Jesus' name when they had the name of that office. In the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood upon you. That's what John the Baptist did. He didn't say in the name of Jesus Christ. Anyway, continuing on with this quote by Joseph Smith. And if it was the gospel and that and that preached in the name of Christ or Messiah, had it any ordinances? If not, was it the gospel? If it had the ordinances, what were they? Our friends may say perhaps that they never that there never were any ordinances except those of offering sacrifice before the coming of Christ and that it could po- could not possibly that it could not be possible before the gospel to have administered while the law of the sacrifice of blood was in force but we will recollect that Abraham offered sacrifice and notwithstanding this had the gospel preached to him So then, because the ancients offered sacrifice, it did not hinder their hearing the gospel, but served, as we said before, to open their eyes and enable them to look forward to the time of the coming of the Savior and rejoice in his redemption. We find also that when the Israelites came out of Egypt, They had the gospel preached to them, according to Paul, in his letter to the Hebrews, which says, For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them. We're on page 44, still in the same quote. Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. It is said again in Galatians chapter 3 verse 19 that the the law the law which is talking about the law of Moses or the Levitical law was added because of transgression. What we ask was this law what was this law added to? Now, I just have to say real quick what Moses received on Mount Horeb was a restoration of what had been before. There was some stuff added to it for the sacrificial stuff, but that law is still applicable today. Jesus said during his ministry, I have not come to do away with one 
jot or one tittle or one smallest part of the law. And they still continued to live the Torah laws after Jesus' resurrection. It wasn't until the Romans hijacked early Christianity that these things have been so twisted up that people think that it's not applicable anymore. It must be plain that it was added to the gospel since they learned that they had the gospel preached to them. Unquote. And that was Joseph Smith and Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, pages 59 through 60. If then the gospel was preached to Abraham and yet Abraham lived plural marriage, it indicates that Abraham was complying with the requirements of the ordinances of the gospel. We must therefore conclude that Abraham was obeying this principle as a law which was obligatory, obligatory upon him. He was then justified in doing so. This was revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith. And he said, this is Joseph Smith, quote, Abraham received all things whatsoever he received by revelation and commandment. So he didn't just go looking for a wife. And he just he didn't just take Hagar as a wife because his his other wife brought her to him. Now, she did bring her. She brought Hagar, but he didn't do it until he got revelation that it was correct. So if a wife brings you another wife, a possible wife, and you take it to the Lord and you get revelation and your wife gets revelation and this other wife that you're going to take gets revelation that it is correct, then you move forward. That's what Abraham did. He didn't just take a wife because Sarah brought him. He got revelation to do what he did. Well, let's read it again. This is Joseph Smith, the much beloved prophet of the Mormons. Abraham received all things whatsoever he received by revelation and commandment. By my word, saith the Lord, and hath entered into his exaltation and sitteth upon his throne. Go ye therefore and do the works of Abraham, enter into my law, and ye shall be saved. And if ye enter not into my law, ye cannot receive the promise of my father, which he made unto Abraham. Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, verses 29, 32, and 33. So like I said... There's some corruption in this revelation, but I do believe that there is a lot of truth in it as well. And you've got to sift that out for yourself. I could tell you what I believe, but you've got to get revelation for yourself. Anyway, continuing on, Orson Pratt justified Abraham's living plural marriage and came to the conclusion that it was a part of the gospel of Christ. If plurality is offensive in the sight of God, why was Abraham, who practiced it, called the friend of God and the father of the faithful? Why did the Lord promise that in him, as well as in his seed or his children, all the families of the earth should be blessed? Why require all the families of the earth under the Christian dispensation to be adopted into the family of a polygamist in order to be saved. Page 45. Why choose a polygamist to be the father of all saved families? 
And not only that, he sits in the judgment bar. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sit at the judgment bar. And contrary to popular belief, every single one of them were polygamists. Isaac had more than one wife. He had more than Rachel. Jacob had four wives, which the uh, the 12 tribes of Israel came out of. Abraham had at least two wives. And they're all sitting at the judgment bar. Why require all Christian families in order to be saved to walk in the steps and do the works of Abraham? Why did God proclaim himself to be to be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and say that this shall be my name and my memorial to all generations. See Exodus chapter 3, verse 15. Real quick, um, I do take a little bit of umbrage at this quote because you can be saved without living polygamy. Polygamy is so that you can receive your... It's actually meant for the women to receive their exaltation. It's the the sealing of the Holy Spirit of promise that completes the, the binding glue that brings the masculine and the feminine together, which is required so that you can gain your eternal life. But it's the blood of Jesus Christ and him paying for our sins in the Garden of Gethsemane that actually seal or saves us. And you can be saved as a single person. But you cannot be exalted without being sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, man to woman, woman to man. If polygamy is not to be sanctioned among the generations of Christendom, why did he represent himself to be the God of polygamists and say that all generations should adopt that memorial of him? Why choose these polygamists to be examples for Christians and say that many should come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and sit down with them in the kingdom of God? Will Abraham's wives and concubines and Jacob's four wives be in the kingdom of God with their husbands? If so, will it um, will it not greatly corrupt the morals of Chris, Christians to sit down in the same kingdom with them? Will not Christians be greatly ashamed to be found sitting in the company of polygamists? Will Christians entirely ruin their character by being adopted into the family of so noted a polygamist as Abraham and be obliged to acknowledge him as a father and to be called his children? The scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the, uh, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying in saying, in these shall all nations be blessed, Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. What kind of gospel was preached to Abraham? Was it not the same gospel that was preached after Christ, by which the heathen were to be justified, and by which all the families of the earth might be blessed by becoming the children of Abraham through adoption? Did it not require the same gospel to save the polygamous father 
in the kingdom of God as that which saves his adopted children that sit down with him in the same kingdom? Does the gospel, since Christ exalted, Christ exalts Christians to a more glorious kingdom than the one where Abraham dwells? If not, is it any better than the gospel preached to Abraham? Did not Abraham see the day of Christ and rejoice in it and look forward to his atoning sacrifice, the same as Christians afterwards look back to the same atonement? If the gospel which was preached to Abraham required the same faith, the same repentance, the same justification, the same sanctification through the Holy Ghost, if it procured for him the same blessings, the same gifts of prophecy and revelations, the same gifts seeing visions and of conversing with angels, the same miraculous powers and heavenly promises, if it made him worthy of the title of friend of God, and exalted him to be the father of the faithful, even the father of all saved nations. If, moreover, it saved him in the kingdom of God, in the same kingdom where his Christian children are to sit down with him, then was it not the gospel of Christianity, the very same gospel that was preached after Christ? And if the same gospel, then who dare deny that polygamy, polygamy was not practiced by the very best of men under a Christian and gospel dispensation? Who dare say that Abraham's righteousness was not as great as the righteousness of his children? End quote, Orson Pratt, the seer page 187 and 188. Plural marriage was practiced by a few of the Jews during the Christian dispensation. However, it was nearly always, it has always, near, always, I'm sorry, it has nearly always been a doctrine that has aroused the prejudice and the wrath of others. We may determine that plural marriage was one of the reasons that caused the persecution and oppression of Jesus. For if plural marriage was a part of the gospel, then Jesus would have taught it and practiced it himself. The prophet Joseph Smith indicated this, and we're on page 47. This is Joseph Smith. It always has been... When a man was sent of God with the priesthood and began to preach the fullness of the gospel, that he was thrust out by his friends who are already to butcher him if he teach anything which they imagine to be wrong. And Jesus cruci was crucified upon this principle. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 310. So, I don't know exactly how to say this, but people judge Abraham and other polygamists by their own corrupted thoughts of what they think they would do or what they might even be guilty of.
and I know I'm not saying this very well, but you shouldn't judge others based upon what you feel would be a sin for you. Because polygamy can be a sin. You can live it unrighteously. You can lust after women and, you know, like men that run around looking for wives all the time. And I see this a lot in, in, uh, in younger men or may, maybe even middle-aged men and some older men too, that they want to be fundamentalists because they want to live polygamy. It doesn't, they don't have any other goal in mind than just to have a bunch of wives. And it's so funny because over the years, I've seen so many of these men approach me and ask me, well, what, in fact, there's a guy right now that talks about this and he wants to be a fundamentalist. And that's fine if he wants to be a fundamentalist. But there's so much more to being a fundamentalist than just polygamy. Polygamy is part of it. But I always tell people, you've got to wait on God. If God wants you to have more than one wife, then he will send them to you. And not just like, I don't even know how to say this. I Well, with my wife, you know, we're not polygamists. I am sealed. I was sealed to my first wife in the Bountiful Temple in 2006. And uh, things didn't work out between us. And I haven't seen her since 2006. Um, no contact at all. I don't. I know she lives in near Provo, but I don't bother her and she doesn't try to contact me. It wasn't until 2012 that God sent my wife Kimberly into my life. And I've talked about it before where she had been praying. So her ex did some really bad things to her. And they went through this whole grand jury trial. And right at the last second, something happened that was not her fault. It was some kind of procedural thing. I don't know. But the case was, um, there was a mistrial. And going through all the trauma that she went through to relive what she had been through with her ex in front of a bunch of strangers and having to rehash everything was traumatic enough. And then they wanted to like go back through the whole process. And cause it wasn't double jeopardy. It was just something happened. And I think it was when it had something to do with him being in handcuffs when she they were trying him or something to do with handcuffs when he shouldn't have been in handcuffs because they said that it tainted the jury's uh, 
whatever what they thought of whatever it does it doesn't matter but it, it just got there was a mistrial so anyway um kim agreed because she did not want to have to go through all the mess that he would be on house arrest with the gps unit would not be able to leave the county for like 10 or 15 years and that if he was if he was found guilty of everything that he would have to plead that everything would go back on him or whatever all the charges would fully go back on him so anyway i don't remember and i don't know how this all works but um so she escaped uh northern new york near messina and went to New Hampshire where her family was and was able to take her two children and just escape this this monster. And um, he did spend like a year in jail or something like that. But uh, And he learned from his mistakes on how to get better at doing what he did and not being able, or like he thought he could do this. So long story short... One of Kim's really good friends that she would stay at her house while the jury trial was going on in Messina. Um, when this man got out of jail, he basically preyed upon the insecurities of this this friend of Kim's and let me just tell you some of the things that he did to her so you kind of understand where Kim came from. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what happened to Kim, but I'll tell you what happened to this other woman. He would chain her up in the bedroom. He would put wood over the windows so that she couldn't escape. And he would take her clothes away from her and he would make them urinate and defecate into a bucket and then he would make them well it was really bad and the only reason he got caught again was because he decided to go to some kager some rager and he got arrested and he got thrown in jail because if he got into any trouble then then all these other charges would come back upon him. Anyway, so uh, somebody went looking for this other woman that he was with that he did all these really bad things to, and they found her naked without food with her two children chained to the bed or something to that effect. Kim went through that kind of stuff herself like guns in her mouth and just really bad things. And Kim had left and she'd been gone from him for two or three years by the time she met me. And the only reason she met me is because her bishop told her she hated men. And the bishop in her ward in upstate Vermont told her, I asked her if she would just please 
get on a LDS dating site and like at least talk to men. And so she was like, fine, I'll do it. And he paid for three months of her or something to that effect. So she was on this site that I was on, LDS Singles. Now, I had a lifetime membership from LDS Mingles, which is owned by the same company. And I was a lifetime member, which means I was one of the first members that contributed to helping get that site going. And so because I was one of the first members, I had a free lifetime membership at LDS Mingles, but not on LDS Singles, which came a little bit later. But God told me to get on LDS Singles, and I didn't know why. And it was stupid because I LDS Singles and LDS Mingles are the exact same format. Like, And I wasn't really looking to like get married or anything else. I just liked to go and chat and go on the message boards and talk about theological stuff and whatnot. So, um, so I did. I went on LDS Singles, and then I met him and a whole bunch of other people and people were uh attracted to me not necessarily physically or whatever but i had fun on lds singles or and mingles the chat room there um i knew html coding each html coding and in the chat rooms, I could do things that nobody else could do. Like I can make the fonts big or small. I can make them upside down or backwards. I could do so many different colors. I could do rainbow colors. I could do fonts that nobody else could do. I could do invisible fonts where you had to highlight it to see it. I could do a whole bunch of silly stuff. And I used to joke around um, with the people that I was really good friends with on there. And there was a bunch of them that um, if they joined my, um, I can't remember what I called it, something to the effect of the Secret Society of the Sacred Crayon. <laughs> and what that was is because I had all these different fonts and all these colors and all these whatever that I could do. And so everybody who was a, a member of the secret society of the sacred crayon would, um, I would give them an HTML code and I told them not to share it. This was theirs. And they could have some special code that I gave them so that when they typed, if they put that, that HTML code in before they typed the font and the, the special, whatever it was that I did for them, would be, you know, their own. And everybody would be like, how how are you guys doing this? And they'd be like, well, we're members of the Sacred Society of the Crayon. And, and I was the godfather or something. I don't remember. It was stupid. And it was a long time ago. And I used to do that on LDS Mingles. But anyway, this is LDS Singles. So, um, so Kim and I used to chat just privately and in the groups. And, and we had a lot of fun just just having fun goofing around with a lot of other people. And, um, well, one day we were talking about some theological stuff and she had to go, but she wanted to continue talking to me. So she gave me her phone number and asked me to text her and we would text back and forth. So that was like in March when that happened of 2012, and so for a couple of weeks, you know, we texted a little bit here and there. And like, 
she'd be like, oh, where are you at today? And at that time, I was a directional drilling operator and truck driver in uh, near the Tampa Bay area for Bright House Cable. Well, for a company that was leased to them. And so, like, we would be all over the place. Like, one day we'd be at the beach, you know, doing whatever, and then we'd be somewhere else the next day and whatever. So I'd take pictures of things and send it to her. Well, one day, um, and I remember what day it was because there was a youth conference out at this island near uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, that our St. It was just south of St. Petersburg Beach on the Gulf Coast. And I went to that. And then my friend that I went to Florida with was gay. And, well, he was bisexual, but I didn't care. He's my friends for forever. So I'd go with him to his little thing. So we went to this party with all these gay guys running around and whatnot. And I was in the pool and we were just enjoying I don't know. They had a bouncy house in the pool. <laughs> it was fun. Anyway, I try not to judge people for their sexuality, and I'm not going to judge them. I'm going to let God judge them. But that's a side note. Anyway, so I was at this pool party, and um, I had this very strong impression that I needed to call Kim. Now, I'd never talked to her before in my life, um, other than just a chat and text. So I got out of the pool and I had this flip phone and I was wet, (laughs) but I got on the phone and I actually ruined my phone, but my phone worked for this phone call. And then it, it, uh, it got screwed up and I had to wait for it to dry out and took like three days for my phone to work again. But so I called Kim and I said, hi, this is Lazarus 1977. And um, that's what everybody called me. And um, I don't know why, but Heavenly Father told me I have to call you. And he wants me to tell you some things. Now, I didn't know that she had just gotten off of her knees about 30 minutes before that and had been in a multiple hour prayer just asking God all these really deep questions because she found out that her ex had been released from prison or jail and that she or that he was with one of her friends that should have known better and it just really tore her apart that he was out of prison or jail or whatever it was. And then all of these things. And she's asking all of these theological questions to God. And she said, why does he get to do this? And why do all these men get to do these things to women? And this is not the first time she's been in a bad relationship. And I won't get into it, but it goes way back. And... She kind of demanded the Heavenly Father send her her eternal companion. And she was like, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. 
I'm going to college. I'm going to church. I'm the nursery leader. Um, I'm doing all these things that you want me to do. And why am I not being blessed? And so she got done with her prayer and with all these other questions. And then I called her like 30 minutes later and I answered all of her questions that she didn't ask me, that I didn't even know that she had asked Heavenly Father. But Heavenly Father told me to to call her and to tell her some things. And I was led in the spirit. And it was interesting because right after the phone call, Heavenly Father said, take her as your wife. And I was like, I'm not going to tell her. (laughs) Here I am arguing with God because I don't want to be crazy, you know. I'm like, I'm not going to tell her that God told. This has happened to me so many times where these women tell me like multiple times. Heavenly Father told me that you're supposed to be my husband. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> like, I'm not even dating you. Um, but yeah, so I didn't want to be that crazy LDS person that was like, hey, Heavenly Father told me you're supposed to be my wife. So anyway, well, unbeknownst to me, Heavenly Father told her audibly that she needed to bear me children and ease my burden. So finally, three days later, my phone starts working again. It's dried out. And she calls me and she's all, "Um, you're going to think I'm crazy, but Heavenly Father told me to bear you children and to ease your burden. And I said, I know Heavenly Father told me to take you as my wife. And that was on November... I'm in November. Uh, It was on May 18th, I believe. I probably have to go back and look at my journal. It was May 18th or May 25th of 2012. And I said, well, I guess we should get to know each other. And I was like, so we started talking on Skype, which I'd never seen a video chat of her before. And that was the first time. Well, that was the second time I talked to her. The first time was when I called her three days earlier. And, um, And God set us up. He put us together. And we met each other in person on June 30th, 2012. I met her family uh, in in New Hampshire and New York. And then in North Carolina, we drove in her van to North Carolina. And then we went down and 20 days later, we were married in Florida. 20 days to the day we I met her in in person on June 30th and we were married on July 20th. So I know that God can send people into people's lives. I wasn't looking for her and she wasn't looking for me, but it was right. And if <clears throat> if a man wants to live polygamy, well, live worthy of it. And if it is right, God will send the women to you. Now, there is another woman that Kim and I would wholeheartedly accept into our family as a sister wife. But she will not, she wants to, but she doesn't want to get excommunicated from the LDS church. So that's a choice she's, she's made. And we're not pressuring her or anything. 
But, you know, we're open to it, but we're not looking for it. And these people that are trying to have, like, and it's so funny because so many of these guys that I meet, they can't make one marriage work, but they want more. Or they can't even find a first wife, but they're like, they want 10 wives or something like that, which is way too many. Um, if you can't take care of the the needs that God has set up in the in the Torah that you should follow, and you can't take care of their their clothing, their food, their children, um, and the woman's sexual desire, which is a big one, then you sh- and and emotional desire, not just sexual. Like you got to take care of it all and be able to handle it. And then if you can handle it with one, and God gives you another wife, you have to be able to do that for that other wife too. This whole law of um, purity crap that some of these fundamentalists do. I'm sorry if you're listening to this and you're a fundamentalist and you believe in the law of puri- purity. It contradicts the Torah. It contradicts the instructions in Torah. And I don't care how much you feel that God has revealed this law of purity. If it contradicts the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or the Doctrine and Covenants, according to Joseph Smith, you have to set them down as imposters. And if you believe that crap, I don't care how deluded you are. I don't care how much you feel the Holy Ghost or whatever it is that you feel. It contradicts the Torah, and I have to set you as an imposter. Anyway, so I felt like I needed to say that for somebody, and I hope you don't take offense, but I'll leave that between you and God. So, all right, um, let me just, we've got five minutes left in the, uh, the reading, and we're getting on to 15 minutes until the two-hour mark, and I'd like to keep this under that, so let me just read. Many men will say, I will never forsake you, but will stand by you at all times. But the moment you teach them some of the mysteries of the kingdom of God that are retained in the heavens and are to be revealed to the children of men when they are prepared for them, they will be first to stone you and put you to death. It was this same principle that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and will cause the people to kill the prophets in this generation. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 309. And that's part of the reason why I don't release the book of Lehi. Like, I have I have an unabridged version of the book Lehi, not what Joseph Smith had. I have the full thing. But there's things in it that you, most of you are not ready to to hear so I don't release it because this principle that Joseph Smith was just talking about would apply to the Gentile minded Mormon Uh, let's see I prophesy in the name of the Lord God of Israel anguish and wrath and tribulation and the withdrawing of the spirit of God from the earth await this generation until they are visited with utter desolation He's talking about this dispensation. This generation is as corrupt as the generation of the Jews that crucified Christ. 
And if he were here today and should preach the same doctrine he did then, they would put him to death. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page uh, 328. And they would because the Christianity that you have today in the world is apostate, is all hell. After Rome hijacked early Christianity... What you believe today, there's so much false doctrine in it, and there's so much pagan idolatry in apostate Christianity today. Not not to mention the fact that Jesus said he came not to do away with one jot or tittle or one smallest part of the Torah. And like everybody's like, well, he nailed that to the cross. Actually, he didn't. The holy days of Jehovah are still applicable. The laws of Torah, many of them are still applicable. Now, you have to have revelation to know which laws are man-made laws and which laws, because actually, just because it's in the scriptures doesn't mean it's God's law. Because King Josiah added many things during his reign to the Torah, which corrupted it, which is a huge reason why God had the temple destroyed because of what they were doing in that generation. Anyway, the prophet Joseph only confirmed what the ancient philosophers and historians had written as true facts of history. The apostle Jedediah Grant commented, and that's Jedediah M. Grant, who was living during the days of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. The grand reason for the burst of public sentiment in Anthemus, uh, Anthemus, I can't say that word, upon Christ and his disciples causing his crucifixion was evidently based upon polygamy. According to the testimony of the philosophers who rose in that age, a belief in the doctrine of plurality of wives caused the persecution of Jesus and his followers. We might almost think they were Mormons. End quote, Jedediah M. Grant, Journal of Discourses, Volume 1, page 346. What does old Silas say who was a physician in the first century whose medical works are esteemed very highly at the present time. His works on theology were burned with fire by the Catholics. They were so shocked at what they called their impiety. Celis was a heathen philosopher. And what does he say upon the subject of Christ and his apostles? And their belief, he says that the grand reason why the Gentiles and the philosophers of his school persecuted Jesus Christ was because he had so many wives. There were Elizabeth and Mary and a host of others that followed him. After Jesus went from the stage of action, the apostles followed the example of their master, For instance, John the Beloved Disciple writes in his second epistle unto the elect lady and her children 
whom I love in truth. And again, he says, having many things to write unto you or communicate would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. Again, the children of the elect sister greet thee. This ancient philosopher says that they were both John's wives. So first wife, wife, second wife, sister wife. Anyway, so he calls her the elect sister. Paul says, mine answer to them is to examine me in this. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, sister wife, as well as other apostles and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? He, according to Silas, I don't know if I'm saying that right, had a numerous train of wives. Jedediah M. Grant, Journal of Discourses, Volume 1, page 345, or on page 49. The grand reason why the Gentiles and the philosophers of his school persecuted Jesus Christ was because he had so many wives. There were Mary and Elizabeth and a host of others that followed him. Uh, and that is from Alorius Cornelius Celsus, who lived from 30 BC to 38 AD. Page 51. It is only logical that Jesus and his apostles would honor all the laws of marriage in order to set the proper example for their followers. The Church of Christ required its officers, such as elders, bishops, and even deacons, to marry. See, First uh, Timothy chapter three verses one through four and twelve. Peter was also married. See Matthew chapter eight verse fourteen. Paul, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, had to be married to vote on the decision of that body. See Acts chapter seven verse fifty-eight through sixty. Acts chapter eight verse one. Now, to be a, a rabbi, you had to be married in that day. And and Paul, or Shaul, was a rabbi who was a high priest in the Sanhedrin. <clears throat> of the apostles honored Abraham in his marriage, modern Christian ministers are em- embarrassed at the thought of Jesus being married as though it were some sort of mortal sin, or moral sin, sorry. However, if marriage has any element of sinfulness, where is it mentioned in the scriptures? Jesus never forbid, forbid, nor condemned, nor failed to sanction any of the principles and laws pertaining to this everlasting covenant of marriage, especially in the lives of Abraham, Jacob, and a host of other prophets who had lived plural marriage. Neither did he criticize any of the laws pertaining to marriage or plural marriage as established by the Torah and Moses. So that is the end of that chapter, which I know has taken forever for me to get through it. And I'm sorry. It's actually taken me three or four days of actual recording time just because I've been so tired and I've been so busy. But we're done. So I'm going to post it today and then I'll start working on the next chapter.
So uh, this has been an everlasting covenant of marriage, chapter six of Jesus was married, pages thirty-eight through fifty-two, and I will post the links at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally mormon and uh all over the facebook and all of that fun stuff so thank you so much for listening to this program this has been a zion's redemption radio network program take care everyone god bless and goodbye